Well, we've been in a series this year, a four-part peace series, really, and we're in part number three about peace with ourself. And we've been using the material from Emotionally Healthy Church and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And so we've been digging into this because these things we hope become part of a discipleship track uh, that one of our staff team members, along with some of the, those of you volunteering, will help lead in the years to come. Uh, Andreas, in fact, is going to be overseeing that in his role, his expanded role on our team here, in addition to worship. And so we've been going through this little different kind of teaching series in that we're using this kind of material and uh, adapting it accordingly. So as we're in this third part of this, the larger series or discipleship pattern this year, we want to dig into emotionally healthy spirituality. And the main sort of thesis or, or idea behind this third part is that without dealing with emotional part of life, we tend to super spiritualize our problems and suppress them and we don't learn to deal properly how to manage and how to hear from our emotions. And so this is something really important in becoming a disciple of Jesus. And we mentioned this in the first message where we introduced this, that we see in the New Testament emotions on display by Jesus, by his disciples. We see it in the Old Testament as well, particularly the book of Psalms is a wonderful display. And there's many, many stories of characters throughout the Old and New Testament that speak to them being aware and naming their emotions and how their emotions are affecting them as well. The first principle that we discussed uh, two weeks ago, we talked about this knowing yourself that you may know God. And sort of the character study there was around David in Psalm 69, knowing yourself that you might uh, also know God. We spent some time with that first principle, opening it up. There's seven principles. Last Sunday, Andreas preached on principle number two. In order to go forward, sometimes we need to go backwards. And so building on that emotionally healthy things, when we get stuck, we, are, we need to ask, what is it that's been for me in the past that is influencing why I'm stuck emotionally or mentally in this place right now? And we unpack that. This Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to talk about this idea of letting go, of letting go letting go of our sense of power and control in a proper way and knowing how to embrace sort of the good kind of personal power, but also have this recognition of our limits as well. So we're going to explore that this Sunday and next Sunday in the series on emotionally healthy spirituality. So as you know, if you've, unless you've been here for the first time, I'm, I'm a foreigner here and I say that almost every Sunday and Graham McCarthy yells at me for doing it, but he's not here. So nanner nanner. Um, uh, I'm, in, I'm in process, I'm a permanent resident here, but I grew up in the upper prairies, high plains, Midwest, or just the edge where the West in the United States starts, which has a lot of unique cultural elements, just as every place does in North America. There was a radio show uh, that was, I forget if it started in the late 70s or 80s, that was on a public radio channel called Minnesota Public Radio. And, and so if I start talking like, uh, you know, strangely here, you're going to understand why in a moment. I'm, I'm going back. I'm regressing. I'm going back to go forward here. Um, and there's a show called Prairie Home Companion. Now, it turns out a few years ago, there were some issues with the, the main uh, narrator and the guy that basically created and ran the show, Garrison Keillor. But if you grew up in these places, you probably listened to Prairie Home Companion because it was a funny story that made fun of small town life in sort of the high plains, Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota, and all of that. So, so hang with me here. I know this is going to be a cultural like jumping into a pond here, but some of this we'll identify with regardless of where we came from or what town is. But he made up this sort of fictional town called Lake Wobegon, Wobegon, Lake Wobegon, and 
when this, at the, at the end of every monologue, he created, told these stories uh, about this town and all of the foibles and weird things that happened in this little silly town and people relating to each other and this and that. But at the very end of every monologue, he would say this, and that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Let me say that again. And that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. This has actually become known, sort of tritely in psychological circles, as the Lake Wobegon effect. This idea of our illusory or our false superiority. And again, it simply means that we tend to inflate our positive qualities and abilities, especially in comparison to others. We tend to inflate our personal uh, qualities and abilities, especially in comparison to others. Numerous research studies have revealed the tendency that we overestimate ourselves. For instance, when researchers some years ago asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers, none of the students, none of them rated themselves as below average. None of them, out of a million. As a matter of fact, 60% of students believed they were in the top 10%. 60% believed they were in the top 10%. 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. 25% said they were in the top 1%. You'd think college professors might have more self-insight, but they were just as biased in these kinds of studies. 2% of college professors rated themselves below average. 10% were average. And 63% of all college professors were above average. And 25% rated themselves as the top and truly exceptional. Andreas has blessed us with Regent students, our elitist evangelical institute. I'm just kidding. Our, our evangelical institute, we're very glad that we'll experience Regent students for sure. And thank you again for joining us this morning. Um, give a hand to these guys for stepping into a completely unknown context. <laughs> Nothing more terrifying. But 25% of university professors rated themselves as truly exceptional. Of course, this is statistically impossible, right? You can't have more than 1% in the 1% of excellent people or the nicest people or the brightest people. And one researcher summarized the data this way. It's a great contradiction that the average person believes he is a better person or she is a better person than the average person. The average person believes they're better than the average person is a great contradiction. And we experience that sometimes in our emotional life, in our experience in church, because we're all thinking, uh, many of us are thinking this idea of thinking of ourselves more highly than the person sort of next to us, as it were. Psychologist Mark uh, McMinn, a Christian, contended that the Lake Wobegon effect reveals our pride. He writes, one of the clearest conclusions of the social science research is that we are proud. We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than in vivid color, and we assume the worst we assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. So as we dig into this passage today, and we talk and we begin to understand the power of letting go of power and control, and particularly we're going to talk about living in weakness and vulnerability today, and more of the letting go next Sunday. But what is this living in weakness and vulnerability? This is so upside down kingdom principle. I want to read to you this morning from the Apostle Paul, writing to one of my favorite books that if we do another verse-by-verse -verse series, it will probably be 2 Corinthians. I'm just warning you because I've been, I've been so immersed in 2 Corinthians so much, I just I feel like it's, there's so much goodness in here, craziness and goodness. But he writes this, 
I'm going to go back to my earlier note there for a second. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, and then I'll read from chapter 12. He's dealing with a church that's having all kinds of things going on, conflict. There are people that are saying they're super apostles, they're more talented, they're better than the founding apostle and all of this, and they're actually leading the church astray. And Paul has some things to say about the power of living in weakness and vulnerability. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, and if you've been a Christian for very long, you've heard this passage, and if not, it's a beautiful passage. The context probably is that in the city of Corinth, there was um, these little clay lamps that they made to help light homes, and they were generally kind of cheap and fragile, and light could come through sort of the thin clay, but the point was that the light would be seen. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so Paul's saying that about the message of Jesus. And he said, we're hard-pressed on every side. We're crushed. We are, excuse me, we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always, and he's talking about himself and those that are being faithful to the way of Jesus, we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus, his death on the cross, his scandalous death, God who lets us kill God. We carry around that knowledge in our bodies when we experience this persecution so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed even in our mortal bodies right now, even now, not just in the life to come. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This kind of spiritual leadership that matures to the point of recognizing that we experience, we enter into this as we mature. And then he said this, by the way, in a little bit later in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and, I, and this is sort of context for what we want to unpack quickly this morning. Paul's dealing with something that's called a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And biblical scholars debate, what did this refer to as? Could it be referred to as some temptation that he was dealing with? Perhaps. Could it be dealing with uh, someone who is literally going around sort of persecuting him and giving him, goading him and all of that? If you've seen memes based on this passage, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan was sent to buffet him. And you'll see like a, a Christian cartoon meme, you know, of some bad experience in the church usually. So anyway, this messenger from Satan. But it probably was his physical ailment. That's what some, I like where Ben Witherington goes with this. It's, it's looking at other passages of scripture written by Paul or written by his scribal understudies who would do writing for him as well. In one of his letters, he says, see on this part of the letter, how the script is larger now. It's in such large writing by my own hand instead of uh, my, my sort of understudy writing things out for me. So it may be that he was dealing with eyesight deterioration. We don't know exactly what it is. So you could probably apply it into any number of circumstances. But he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan. But he said to me, meaning God spoke to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, the Lord's power is made perfect in weakness. Say that with me. His power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says this, therefore, 
So he had all these super apostles, all these amazing televangelists, all of this, you know, Hillsong's worship with all their things, or, or if you're a classical person, like the most high church Anglican glorious choirs and blah, 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 or whatever your taste is. He doesn't boast in any of his skills or his gifts or his apostolic authority. He says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. For that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Pray with me for a second and we're going to give some application here. Oh, Lord, as we look at number three in emotionally healthy spirituality and being an emotionally healthy church, letting go of our pretense of power and control, learning to live in vulnerability and weakness, authenticity is huge. And God, we've seen all across North America when the church has aligned itself with power over of the kingdoms of the world, when it's gotten in bed with that kind of way of being that the love child is violence and destruction and dehumanization. But when the church mirrors you and lives in vulnerability and weakness, when the church follows the Jesus that it says we worship, we see a different kind of power that comes through. And when we experience conflict and when we experience these things in life and church that cause us to scratch our heads, may we learn the lesson of vulnerability and weakness, that in that there is true power that changes from the inside out, from the bottom up. And so may we learn from Paul this vital lesson as we learn to learn to lean into weakness and vulnerability your glory is revealed your love is on display and people are drawn to that life and change happens so lord today i pray that as we step into the rest of this message be with us i'm a saint and sinner in process continue to move in jesus name amen amen so let's look a little bit deeper at this passage. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 12, this idea of the false apostles being confronted, that we need to live strong and we need to pretend or we need to say everything's okay. I did a bit of a season in something called a Word of Faith Church. And let me tell you, there were some wonderful things about that experience. We learned to worship I think, I think that's something where there was, there was so much freedom and so much expression, and that part of emotion was really encouraged. But in terms of being honest about vulnerability and weakness, it was just the opposite. We could affirm the positive. We could affirm the good. We could shout hallelujah. We, could, we were told to look at sickness and deny that it was there. We were told that, that uh, you know, if you need a new car, you just name it and claim it. Put a picture on your refrigerator and lift that before Jesus every day. Now, there's something about faith in that that's good. But then there's a horrible, 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 nasty dark side. <laughs> that if you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, you couldn't pray Psalm 23. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You could get to the fear no evil part, but there was a lack of honesty and a willingness to let that be there. And here Paul is a model of understanding the use of weakness as a strength. Paul wrote half of the New Testament roughly and was apostle expanding the church faster over more territory than anyone in Christian history really. And Paul taught and believed in and was a spiritual authority. That is indisputable looking back over the 2,000 years of Christian history. And yet his authority and position was often challenged on occasion. And if like so many of us when that happens in our lives we say no, no. And here he 
gets assertive about his weaknesses instead of his strengths. I wish I could get this right all the time. I don't. And so if you're looking for that perfect pastor who wants to put themselves on a pedestal, by the way, that doesn't really work unless it's a mega church and they're highly isolated and there's so many layers of people you got to break through to ever get to the person, um, you're in the wrong church. Because I've found in my own life that the power of vulnerability and weakness does more to lift up Jesus than talking about the victories and all of those things. And, And we need to celebrate both. There's a place for celebration for sure. But here in the midst of this church conflict, he talks about weakness as a strength. Our societies often measure power in celebrity, in attraction, in wealth, in athleticism, in political skill, and brilliance with dazzling people, dazzling abilities. But here's the thing about that success treadmill. It will often leave you empty. And over the years of ministry, I've met people who are very successful in business, but their family's falling apart. Or their family's doing great, but their finances. Or those are doing fine, but their health. Or their health is doing great, but everything else is neglected. I've very rarely met someone where all of those things are constantly flourishing. Because it's impossible. We live with limits. We live with brokenness. We live with a creation that, that is slowly, uh, slowly unwinding as it waits for Jesus to come and renew all things. Paul could have appealed to all of the things But he appeals in this particular context with these folks that are really harassing him (laughs) to his weaknesses. He doubles down on their attacks, as it were. And he says, you know what happens when I do that? Is those that have ears to hear and eyes to see, see the true power, which is not me, but Jesus working in me and renewing all things. So that's the kind of thing that we lean into. We want to be Jesus-y centered folks. And that means we can be honest about where we're at with things because Jesus can handle it. And Jesus in you is greater than all of the things in the world that want to claim they're your core identity. I need to go a little farther here. I could get hung up more on trying to exegete the passage, but we're going to move into some, some applications. I like how one preacher put it this way. If you can let it go, you can have it all. Whatever it is, if you can let it go, you can have it all. Or in this conversation about merger. And you know what? It might not happen, and that's okay. Or it might happen, and it could be great and wonderful, and we can celebrate good things. But until we learn to walk together in weakness and vulnerability, we can't go and have those kind of breakthroughs that a Jesus-y center new relationship together would want and require. So I'm again, I'm going to give this caveat before I give these things. If you are dealing with conflict at work tomorrow, now don't go to your boss tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, is talking about all your weaknesses and all of that. Remember that in the secular society, you were hired for your strengths, which creates problems. But a good company will create safe environments where you can wrestle with the problems versus pretending they're not there, if you want to read a lot of good books on leadership in those contexts. So be careful who you share your heart with, particularly if they're not for you, other than for what you can do for them. Uh, The church should not be that kind of place, however. And sometimes believers hear a message like this and think it's an excuse to say, in a wrong job or do a poor job, this is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about not putting forth effort here. We're about understanding our limitations and how God works when we are honest about them. And this may lead you to figure out really practically, perhaps you may be in the wrong job. You may be doing the wrong thing. It's not excuse for staying there either if you recognize, man, this is a horrible fit, for example, a real practical application about that. I like how Scazzaro puts this, one of the most important biblical pathways to growth in spiritual authority and leadership is brokenness and weakness. 
Okay, so a few things we need to do here. And this is about the middle of the outline towards the end here. Some real quick pointers. Number one, we need to develop a theology of weakness and universal sinfulness. A theology of weakness. We do this a bit in Genesis when we read Genesis 3 and we read about the fall of Adam and Eve. And it's really popular right now to talk about, well, uh, either denying the concept of the fall or that the fall was only this or that. But I find actually that I'm attracted to the fall. The fall speaks to me on so many levels that actually speaks to my weakness and vulnerability. So while the church sometimes has used the fall to beat up on people, and that needs to be corrected for sure, but the idea that humanity is not what God's original intent or desire or trajectory was is something I find amazingly liberating when I see evil and violence in the world that I don't just passively say, oh, it's just all perfect plan of it's all blessed, it's all blessed, hashtag blessed, you know? No, there's a bunch of garbage going on that is not a loving creator's intention. But it was a secondary result of giving us freedom and our use of it. So I think this idea of understanding about the fall can give us a, a begin to develop a theology of weakness. Again, the other thing is, as we begin to understand our own challenges and weakness, we can learn that in some cases we don't respond with broken behavior patterns uh, over and over again. We can break vicious cycles again. And so as we begin to identify that there is brokenness in creation, it means that we can make choices that are different from that. So we develop this theology of weakness, that things are not as they necessarily should be. And this allows us to work on justice in our own hearts and justice in the greater world. When we can name that things are not as they should be, it's not all blessed and wonderful, it's not all perfect and all sunshine and rainbows, that there are things in here that are evil and broken, that gives us freedom then to make real change. You can't have change until you're honest about your situation. Does that make sense? Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's something that is, leans into truth and flourishing and love and beauty and wholeness. And there's stuff that leans into brokenness, destroyed relationships, destroyed creation, uh, uh, destroyed individuals. And so as we begin to wrestle with that, we can develop a theology of weakness. Now, we've talked about this before. Our response can be often that we want to flee when we experience and begin to name weaknesses and vulnerability. We can bury our weaknesses in addictive behavior. Or we can only focus on a small part of life that we think we can control. This is numbing behavior. So in terms of theology of weakness, we may be avoiding it by trying to flee our weaknesses. And we get our priorities out of whack. We're using something to numb it. Again, I talked about this. You can see people succeed in one area where one or two other areas of life are floundering. And you can flee from that and ignore it. Or you can embrace where you're at and begin to see new life breakthrough. You can fight. You can fight again, fight or flight. I'm not talking about having a good debate or discussion here, but you do life angry, bitter, and violence when life is not going as you thought it should. We may try to spiritualize things away, but we need to understand that sometimes this fight thing is telling us we need to embrace and know what's going on so we can take next steps. And there's some of us that do life and avoid a theology of weakness and brokenness by hiding or freezing. And this is building our life around a cover-up. You cover your cracks, you cover your damage, you fractures, frailties, limitations, imperfections. We sometimes are trying to buy time. We kick the can down a road about a hard truth we need to deal with in our lives. We're trying to cover it up or freeze. There's a little graph in your outline this morning you can see before we get to the last two here about how do I respond when I experience this stuff, am I guarded or defensive or am I open or weak? Do I focus on positive, strong, successful parts of myself 
Or am I also aware of the weak and needy limited parts of who I am? And you can see this graph on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it, but you can read it later. You can see as you're moving as a leader and you're growing as a Christian that you move into the embracing the weak and vulnerability parts of you. And this is part of emotionally, emotional growth as we begin to move into this area and let God move us into this peace. The second thing in terms of how do we move forward in this living in vulnerability and weakness is accepting your gift of a handicap. That weaknesses and struggles are part of your identity through Jesus. Let me use a real safe one. Paul had an issue with eyesight. I also have not great eyes. I wear contacts or glasses. Maybe someday we'll get laser surgery. I don't know. I've heard horror stories about that, so I'm still a little skittish and scared about that. But, um, and I've asked God, heal my eyes, Lord. Heal my eyes. Again, this is a real safe one. But I have to accept that that's just part of my weakness. I don't have great eyesight. Now, when I'm wearing contacts and glasses, it's corrected quite enough, so I can see you all in this room, don't worry. But accepting that. But we can think of that as well as other things in our lives, right? The world treats weakness and failure as terminal and tries to redefine it as meaningless, but God calls failures, sins, and says it's universal human life, all ages, cultures, social experience. Everyone experiences this, but you can lead out of your weakness if you seek Jesus and his strength and power in the midst of it. Oh, there's so much more I want to say here, but let me give you one story about Paul here before we end. I guess the last point. Paul's growth in Christ is fascinating in the New Testament. As he matures, he embraces his weakness and vulnerability more. Paul's growth again, think about this. Too much uh, sort of glossy, we'll name it, claim it, word of faith preaching keeps us away from the victory that Paul talks about in the New Testament. Paul's victory in Christ increases as his awareness of his sinfulness increases. The more you know Jesus, the more you realize you're not like Jesus, but you want to be more like Jesus. It's this weird paradox. The more you begin to be enraptured by the beauty and the teachings and the, the God who lets us kill him and the resurrection of the love of God in Christ, the more you get that in, in you, the more you realize that you don't have it all together and you become a lot more um, nuanced in how you wrestle with things of injustice in your own life and around the world. And then by doing that, you can become more effective in bringing about true change in your life and in this world. But I love this as Paul goes through in Galatians chapter 2 verse 6, about 80, 49, about 14 years of being a Christian, Paul is very proud and headstrong still. He says this when he's in a conflict in a church, and those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul says this language in Galatians 2, 6. Those who were influential added nothing to me. I've got it figured out. I had my encounter with God in the Arabian desert. I've had this thing. Uh, they're, they're not important to me. Six years later, the same man, AD 55, to the church at Corinth is a little more humble. He says in Corinthians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says this, for I am the least of the apostles. So he went from, they can add nothing to me. I received the direct from Jesus to now I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, starting to really aim, own his persecution because he was a terrorist against the church and he becomes a leading a missionary evangelist of the church. But now he has a little more honesty six years later in this journey. They couldn't add anything to me. Now I'm the least of the apostles. 
because I persecuted the church. And then five years after that in AD 60, about 25 years after Paul becomes a Christian, he says this to the church in Ephesus. To me, though I'm very the least of all the saints, grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus. He's telling us he's learning to embrace his weakness, his vulnerabilities, and name them publicly as the kid, and, and as he's doing this, the church is expanding all over. Hear that. They couldn't add anything to me. I'm the least of the apostles. Now I'm the least of all believers. And then two years before Paul's death, perhaps 30 years as a believer, he says this in his letter to Timothy, the younger elder he mentored and put into ministry. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost of all people, sinners of all time. I am the chief of sinners, an older translation would say. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst of them. As a pastor, this has marked me again and again, and I'm definitely not there yet. But I love this. Paul the apostle to the nations and launching churches and overseeing and, and it was an apostle that persecuted by the end of his apostolic career. He is saying things like this. I am the chief of sinners, but Jesus grace is at work in me. When we learn to live in that, there's something of the anointing of God's spirit that comes out. When the church learns that we embrace this, and particularly in post-Christendom Canada, where the church so much has said, oh, we've got it all together in the past, and the church got in bed with the state, and so many horrible things happened. If there's going to be a revival and a renewal of Jesus' way of being in North America, it's going to be as we learn to live as a church based on weakness, which is the last of the main points here. That we are the chief of sinners and we name that and we live in that posture of putting ourselves in that one down position. Now, there are times and places, of course, to, we're not talking in personal, there's times with your personal power that you need to absolutely hold on to that. But I'm talking sort of as the larger group that we need to understand that God is at work in those places of our lives that we are so desperately trying to hide. And God help us as a church if we do not make space for that. Because the more we fake it, the less life change there is. But the more we're vulnerable, the more we welcome the excellency of the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Now, some of you need to affirm this, but let me back it up for just a second and give you a list of things before I truly land the plane. I'm getting there. Hang on. And all God's people said, amen. God meets us in our failures and frailties. God uses people who depend on him and not simply in their own strength. You want to see miracles and cool stuff that we read about, the stuff in the New Testament? It's at the edges of our abilities, and it's the edges of the kingdom of God along people that are far from Jesus and in our own weaknesses. Moses stuttered, and God used him and raised up someone to help him along as well. David couldn't go into battle against the giant Goliath wearing the armor of the armies of Israel, the weaponry of the most latest technology. He could not actually put it on. And God brought a breakthrough supernaturally when David chose to embrace his weakness, physically in this case. 
John Mark is a person in the New Testament who deserts Paul, and Paul won't even work with him again in one case, but God uses John Mark to advance the mission of the kingdom of God. Timothy, we're told, had physical ulcers. Hosea had a wife who was a prostitute. Amos was just a farmer. Jacob lied. David had an affair, was a murderer, and abused power. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a terrorist again. Moses, a murderer. Jonah was racist and ran. Gideon and Thomas had major doubt. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah burned out. John the Baptist was a loudmouth. I know you're all feeling this. Keep keep your comments to yourself. I love you. Let's keep it that way, at least for another two minutes. Martha was a worrier. I think she had some anxiety. Moses got drunk, passed out, drunk, naked on the lawn, drunk. Oh my goodness. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor. Abraham was too old. David and Timothy were too young. Peter was a friend of, uh, was, was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. Moses, Peter, and Paul, and many other leaders had a short fuse. And let's not even begin to talk about Phoebe and Deborah and Junia and all of the women leaders and the women who were the first preachers to the apostles who half the church still ignores today, and God uses them. God uses cracked pots to reveal his power. I got to land it. The parable of the prodigal son is a good one to visit later. I'll just leave that there. You can read it. The reference is there in the notes. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up during this time as well. But I believe our takeouts today are pretty simple. We need to learn to develop our anti-testimonies that drive us back to Jesus and back to embracing the world around us as God does. We need to learn that we are broken and blessed and that's okay. Part of the world wants to say, no, everything I am is wonderful and joyful and all of that. We know that's not true. Now, if you came out of an abusive church context, I get it for a season. But if you want to keep growing, you need to learn to re-embrace weaknesses and vulnerability. And also your blessedness, of course. Questioning is okay. Being at the wall with God, and we'll talk more about the wall next Sunday. But embracing part of your identity that's on that weakness piece can release the work of the Holy Spirit like never before and build community like nothing else can. I like how one old timer put it, we're all sort of beggars who found the source of bread. Who are we to not tell others that we have found the bread of life? So develop language of our anti-testimony, not just our testimony, but our anti-testimony. How God worked in our weaknesses and our ugliness. Secondly, where are you embracing sort of a fake honor culture in front of people that's actually a fraud and is killing you on the inside? Where are you trying to be fake? to try to please people that don't even like you and probably won't ever like you. <laughs> Where are you embracing that? You need to let that go. It's killing something inside of you. No honesty, we don't, with no honesty, we don't experience God's mercy. Fear holds us back. We need to have honesty, at least with several people in our life, and hopefully the church can be a place where that creates spaces for that. And third and finally, living in weakness and vulnerability. Don't do it alone. Invite Jesus to join you in this. Because remember when Paul came to the Lord in prayer and he wrestled in persistency because apparently God wasn't answering his prayer how he wanted. The final word he gets, he doesn't tell us the responses in prayer number one and two, but the final word was this, I'm not taking this away from you. 
this thing will help keep you dependent on my grace. And as you're dependent on my grace, you will be empowered by my Holy Spirit. You see, there is a creator that wants to live within you, to commune within your holy imagination, within your body, your mind. He wants to dwell within you by the Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in all of creation with all people everywhere, wooing and drawing, but he will not force his way in because he wants you to learn how to walk in that and how to invite him in by your choosing. God lets you kill him again and again and again. That's the story of Jesus. And yet he dies for us and he sends his spirit. And so today he's standing and he's saying, will you invite my spirit to dwell within you? And it's a very simple sort of prayer that we choose to walk into weakness, even in sort of stumbling, stuttering faith. And we say, Jesus, I, I admit that I am trying to be God. I'm trying to be the center of it all. And it is falling apart. Maybe not in every place, but in some places. Will you come and indwell me? Will you come and live in me by your spirit? And every time you do that, you welcome him. He comes and lives within you. If you do that for the first time, you're becoming a believer, a follower of the way of Jesus. But it's a continual orientation to say, Lord, I need your, your spirit at work within me. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? I know for some this is a longish series, but it's important as we wrestle with emotionally healthy spirituality that we learn to embrace weakness and vulnerability and let go of our illusions of power and control. So Lord, I pray today that you would send us out from this place, that you would renew your spirit within us, that we leave this place empowered in the face of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And God, that this house can be a safe house a safe place for people to admit that they're on the journey, that they're disappointed with things in their lives, that there are things that are painful in their lives. And Lord, just like you said to the man who was unable to get into the healing pool of Salome, you said to him, do you want to be well? In order to, to answer that question affirmatively, the man had to say or had to acknowledge that something is indeed weak and vulnerable. And even if your response is, my grace is sufficient, we want to receive the power then that you also promise. And that when people look at us, they see us, they see the multifold beauty of your creation, but they also see your power shining through our cracks. <laughs> that we are jars of clay, cracked pots, that your power would be on display. Do that in this house, in Jesus' name.